Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast, episode number 963 with author Dr. Jamie Weiner about his new book entitled The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World. This podcast number 963 is brought to you by Rebecca Costa, author of a new book entitled On the Verge. If you want to know more about Rebecca Costa, her events, her book, please visit her website at www.rebeccacosta.com. That's www.rebeccacosta.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Dr. Jamie Weiner about his new book entitled The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And uh, Jamie, for all of my listeners, I've been doing this so long. I keep saying that same thing. I think they're like, oh, my God, Voice is saying welcome back again. Uh, we're going to be speaking about the quest for legitimacy. The subtitle is How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World. And welcome to the show. Dr. Jamie Weiner. Jamie, how are you? I'm terrific. And Greg, it's, it's great to be here with you. Well, it's great to speak with you because this is an issue which I think goes under the radar in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, these places like Family Firm Institute, which brings CPAs together and attorneys together and financial planners together and psychologists together uh, to try and solve these issues, which it's a big issue. You're one of the only guys who's done some pretty deep research in this area that I'm aware of. Um, and I, that's what's inside this book, plus lots of stories for my listeners. But I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit about you before we get started. Uh, with a multifaceted background in speaking and coaching and counseling and environments ranging from Cook County Jail to exclusive global VIP forums, uh, Dr. Jamie Weiner's expertise and strategic approach to guiding people, helping them to develop inheriting wisdom's ability to, to transcend any um, complication within a family dynamic. And that's the key here. Um, uh Dr. Weiner is a clinical psychologist with over 40 years of experience. In addition, his work with individuals and family, he successfully designed structured programs and systems to address the broad range of challenges people face and is credited to delivering over 100 lectures and workshops. He also has a certificate in the family business advising and family wealth advising from the Family Firm Institute and is the co-founder of the Legacy Conversation, The Missing Gem and Wealth Planning. He's a global board member, director of the Family Firm Institute. You can learn more uh, about Dr. Jamie Weiner at Inheriting Wisdom. That's inheritingwisdom.com. And you can learn more about him at the book website, which is questforlegitimacy.com. And we'll have links to both of those um, so that you can take a look at that and a link to Amazon where you can get a copy of the book. So, Jamie, after doing the review of the book, I see all these great stories, and I don't know if you changed the name to protect the innocent, but <laughs> you, you had a lot of people's names, used first names inside of there. 
And they're great stories because they kind of exemplify what goes on. It also kind of tells what's happening inside um, uh, maybe this generation's head uh, about what's going on psychologically. And, you know, the book is exclusively focused on helping children of high-powered families navigate through the maze and find purpose and meaning in their lives. What, in your estimation, are some of the psychological factors associated with them having issues navigating to a place of happiness, self-worth, and fulfillment uh, in their lives? So, Greg, um, just as a little bit of background, we interviewed 24 um, Rising Gen family members from around the globe. So, Indonesia, Chicago, Costa Rica, we began to find patterns that were similar no matter what was going on culturally that might have been very different. And um, the simplest thing that we found that was fairly use, universal was this feeling of struggling to measure up, giving the prominence of the families that they were born into. And it was that struggle that led to um, a four-phase um, to a, a path that we discovered that was universal, that involved first going through some self-awareness, finding out who you are and who you're becoming, then a tug of war kind of navigating the outside world and the world you're born into, followed by a period of exploration where you're gaining from the outside world and have something to bring back to taking ownership of your life. Yeah, and you know, you know, all of those issues are covered in the book, and we're going to get to that because I'm going to ask you a question around those as well. Um, and you mentioned that the rising gen need to be protected against uh, suddenly feeling entitled. Uh, you state that this book asks, "What is it like for you to grow up in the land of giants, meaning their parents and maybe grandparents and so on?" Based on your research, what is it like for the children of families with considerable wealth uh, growing up in that environment? And just, I mean, you profiled many of them, obviously, and many of the issues associated with that. But generally, what what are what's it like for them? You know, you talked about feeling a self worth. You talk about not not being enough. You all throughout the book, you're talking about many of these psychological factors, but I'm strictly kind of speaking about the psychological issues. Yeah, so um, self-confidence is a universal issue, but for people who grow up in wealthy and prominent families, first of all, they don't grow up with an awareness that, um, oh my God, my parents have a lot of money, what's going to happen with that money? But they do grow up with a sense of, at some point, first of all, realizing there's something different about them. So, for example, one person in the book grew up in a family um, where diamonds were the family trade. And dad came home with a bag of diamonds and she learned to count by counting diamonds. And she went to school and all of a sudden realized not all kids grow up counting diamonds. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it, it, it was a, an awareness 
But it, it was also an awareness that there was something different about the way that she was brought up. And over time, everybody that we interviewed realized that their families had made larger successes, large accomplishments. There was some sense of prominence, some sense of a role in the community that was different than those around them. And um, a wish and somewhat of a struggle to figure out who they were separate from the world that they were born up into without um, divorcing themselves from the world that they were brought, brought up into um, and eventually trying to find a place in it. You know, I, I, I see in a lot of these families, because I work with them as well, that um, the challenges that the children face, not like many other families, is that um, the parents are at odds and there's a divorce, you know, and when families of that magnitude get divorced, it's it, it, frequently it's not a real divorce. It's a divorce, but if you get what I mean, because of the amount of wealth, um, you know, maybe, and, and then another marriage happening on top of that, it kind of complicates it psychologically for uh, the kids. Not that other kids don't, but there seems to be something different about when you come from extreme wealth and there's a divorce in the family. Um, could you talk about that? Because I know in some of your cases, I'm sure you ran into that. <laughs> yeah, you know, one case immediately popped in my head because mom and dad were um, separated, had been separated for enough years that they might as well have been divorced. They operated in terms of business decisions and financial decisions as if they were a couple. Right. And if the, the, the conversation were about those kinds of decisions, you would have had a hard time discerning that in the background there was a divorce going on. So you can imagine for the, the rising gen in that family, there was the world of the business that kind of was the center of the universe where mom and dad appeared to be one. And then there was the world of the family where dad had one life and mom had another life and where they had a relationship to dad as dad and mom as mom. And in that particular family, mom was the um, translator to mm -hmm. dad. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole thing that goes on in the communication pattern in those kinds of families that has both a financial implication, but much more for those growing up in that world for how do we sort this out? <laughs> well, confusion. I would say confusion because um, my sense is if you have a very strong father figure, prominent, and we'll get into that, um, you know, patriarchal kind of situation, and you have daughters, and daughters are connected to their daddies, you know, and then there's a divorce like that. It It's challenging. Now, it's not that other families don't have this. They do. But when there's this extreme wealth in a family, it's, as you just said, it's a more of a separation. They came back together and did business together. And they're, they're giving kind of a conflicting message uh, to the rising gen uh, about that. Now, you tell a great story of growing up in your own family where your father was a prominent religious figure and a rabbi in your community. 
And you mentioned that you struggle to find your own sense of legitimacy. Um, what was it like and how did you ultimately find yourself uh, in the shadow of such a prominent father figure and rabbi who was in your community just extremely well known and respected? Um, and here you are. You you have a relationship here, you know. <laughs> you, you maybe that's why you got in this business. <laughs> yeah, they say that about uh, psychologists is that we get into this business to figure fix, fix our own problems, and I'm not sure that's the case. You're not the case, but you know, if you grow up with a father like I did who's a central figure in a community, who's created a, a synagogue, who's created camps, who's done things, um, who worked with clergy from all kinds of disciplines. It's pretty hard to feel that anything you do is big enough. Um, there are times I would sort of go out in the world and um, look for things that would sort of act like would make me feel like I was big enough. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. There were plenty of opportunities to find things to do that were just a little bit out there. And so for me, I struggled with the things I did that were a little out there in a pretty solid core that came from the the values that ran through my family. Mm-hmm. And it really took me getting my doctorate. It took me a long time. Um, it took me a long time to sort out what do, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be married with? Um, how do, how do I integrate this all? So there's one Jamie as opposed to different kinds of Jamies depending on the situation that I'm in. You know, it was interesting because I have Jewish heritage as well. Um, and that's where I come from. And I was on an interview with a, uh, a not a young gentleman, middle-aged, very, very successful. And he was speaking about a story. And I, it, it just kind of blew me away. His grandfather was part of what he called the Jewish mafia. Oh. Now, I knew nothing about <laughs> this <laughs> Jewish mafia, but evidently it was a pretty tough group of people. Okay. And um, uh, as it turned out, um, his father would overlook this young man's, um, uh, I don't want to call it, um, he, he, he actually, one of the, one of the people who was watching him, he had a, a knife and they were paying a knife fight. And the babysitter got his finger cut off as a result. Oh my the father, but the father didn't react at all because his his father had been so rough on him that he through the generations, his father was part of the what he called the Jewish mafia, who beat up people and all kinds of things. He would not lay a finger on his hand or reprimand this young man. And the story was so distinct that you know I, I recall it in my mind. I'm like. Wow, this is really compelling when you think about his father saying, "Oh, it was okay that you cut the babysitter's finger off." And I'm like, really, play? You guys were playing knives, you know. Well, you know, you speak about the break being the first component 
component of the right when we say break, kind of breaking out, and that it is different in almost every story. You cite Rashi and Evan hitting a breaking point and that frequently they find themselves, and this is one of the stories, in a disoriented place and displaced. If you could, please speak to the listeners about the break and what your qualitative study of Children of Giants revealed about making a break. So, again, 24 different stories. Um, Interviewed twice. There was not a single story that it didn't involve some account of a breaking moment where there was a disruption between how somebody expected life to be going and something that would happen that kind of, you know, changed everything. And that ranged from somebody pretty early in her life, in his life, um, who grew up in a family where Costa Rica tennis was a big game. He broke his arm, no longer could be active with the other family in the game. And, um, from that point on, decided he wanted to do music and surfing and different friends and changed his life. The big story that I tell in the book is of um, Rishi. And Rishi was in college, was already entrepreneurial. He got asked. Um, So, you know, I mean, no, no, I'm just entitled and I'm going to sit here. There was, I'm going to do my own thing. He went back and helped his family um, build a business that managed the 10 businesses father had bought into or started in the course of his lifetime, went back and got his his advanced degree, came back and there was a business that was in trouble in the family, worked for a year, left to go see the um, World Cup, and on his way home um, was in Florida and got an email from dad basically firing him by email. And um, it was more than just getting fired. Yeah. Yes. A, you know, I mean, at that point, it was a break in his in the relationship with, with his Indian father and um, um, Canadian mother, and he stopped speaking to them for two years. But that's, and what's important in the book about that and in the, the research is we think about breaking moments, particularly as you know, in the world of psychology is, oh, my God, what do we have to do as parents? What do we have to do? We've got to help. Oh, this is terrible that it happened. And I, I don't min- mean to minimize the pain, but that was the moment for most of the people in the study where they began to sort out who they really wanted to be and what they wanted to do. So it was a moment of growth, even though it didn't come from, oh, boy, this is wonderful, I get to grow. But it came from having to sort something out and solve problems. Yeah, I I think that what happens in a break, no matter what it is, is there, there are many examples of them, but that was a great story, by the way. You know, get an email where your father fires you. Well, he wasn't firing him psychologically. He was telling his son he was less than because he didn't show up to do what he was supposed to do. He went and took a breakdown and he he was goofing off. According in, in his dad's mind, he was goofing off. 
And in, in, in a lot of these cases, there isn't much tolerance for that. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. There seems to be very little tolerance. Um, and I agree with you. There's an epiphany that occurs uh, and an enlightened spot within that moment. Um, call it almost a spiritual awakening to some degree. Yeah. To say, I need to take a different path here for my own self. Um, I need to, I need to love myself. Um, and that, that is kind of what happens. And, you know, you stated on the quest for legitimacy, it's a simple fact that some, if not all people get stuck along the way. Um, what are some of the examples of the young adults or rising gen being stuck? And if you would speak about when fear, um, just, I don't know, there, there, there's this uh, relationship between fear and trust and this clear myth you talk about, about affluence. You know, there was a book written many years ago about affluence and, and you kind of, uh, don't give that book its legitimacy. <laughs> um, how, maybe I'll say it that way. I'm being nice. Good way to say, Greg. <laughs> what? What? Good way to say it. Yeah, yeah. But that book became very popular, very, very popular. And then you cited that story about the young man in the South who basically uh, got off with murder. Um, and that was, you were citing that story. But if you would, talk about that fear, trust, and the clear myth about affluence, especially the rising gen. So my experience is pretty diverse, as I think yours is too. I spent a, a four and a half years working at Cook County Jail. And um, one particular character at Cook County Jail really stood out for me. He came from a family that if you knew, if I could tell you the last name and you were from Chicago, you would go, yeah, I know that family. And he had really spent um, a life inside institutions and inside the jail. And in the world of people in Cook County Jail, um, most of them really have issues about trusting other people. Um, at one point, one of the detainees, um, I did an exercise with a group of them that was supposed to be about trust. And he looked up and he said, are you kidding? I'm never going to trust anybody. And the group chimed in and went, absolutely. We're not going to trust anybody either. And so, you know, most people kind of assume that trust is a, it's just part of life that, you know, you trust some more than others, but you do to have, in order to have relationships, you have to trust people. And without that sense of basic trust, it's pretty hard to form relationship. It's pretty hard to find yourself. And a psychologist like to talk about narcissism and personality disorders and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But the simple understanding behind all that is an injury that's strong enough that, um, that you, you kind of go through the rest of the world believing that the world is dangerous. Oh, and, most, most certainly. And, and especially people that are incarcerated, I think it, it uh, exacerbates 
the issue as well. Um, so, and you were dealing with those type of people in Cook County Jail, um, which is not the easiest jail around either, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I get it. And, I, and it, when it comes to this rising gen of affluent families, I, I think it's also a similar problem, maybe not to the degree of some of the people that have been incarcerated, but it, there's certainly a trust issue, right? Certainly trust issue. And then if you mix it, mix this with, you see people who are extremely successful in a way that you don't think you're ever going to be able to be successful, then, you know, um, doing um, acts that are not the kindest acts to other people, um, behaving in ways that could get you into Cook County Jail, yeah, um, begins to have make some sense. There's some logic to it, not mm -hmm. to the desirable, but there's certainly logic to it. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the path that people take from generation to generation here, you know, when family wealth gets passed down, you know, they say very seldom does a, a business um, succeed down to more than the third third generation. Right. right. You know, first generation, second generation, third generation, you know, ultimately a lot of those companies get bought up or merged or taken over by somebody <laughs> else or whatever happens. But there are some longstanding ones where, you know, it's been many generations and that hierarchy is there. Um, and there are huge trust issues. Um, now you talked about in the book, the issue of not being enough. And you actually had some qu quite cute little pictures of some, you know, like little drawings. You talk about a 14-year-old who wrote a suicide note stating that he would never be able to live up. I understand that this is an extreme case, which ended with his suicide, but how deeply rooted are these emotions within families of extreme wealth, and what did your research reveal? So obviously I put that, that story in the book because it's the extreme. And, you know, I had spent a number of years working in an adolescent psych unit with, with nine-month-long stays. So most of the adolescents in the program were from affluent, successful families. And it was a poignant example of how strong that feeling could be. Um, most of the people in the study... And it ended up being pretty successful and were not that extreme. But it doesn't mean they didn't, in a very intense way, have that feeling that, um, that no matter what they did, they wouldn't be able to be, to live up. And, um, and, um, you know, one example of that was Henry Kaiser's family from the Kaiser Primenti family who really thought he was raised to take over a significant role in one of was one of the wealthiest families in the world and a much longer story but um was about to get married and went to sit, sit with his grandfather and they could never even have a conversation about whether that role exists and you know as you've seen as i've seen Families don't don't have an easy time getting to that conversation. 
and don't really talk about what it means to pass things on between generations. No, it's true. And I think one of the issues is is um, living up to your word. Um, in these families, now it happens in all families, again, so I'm not just going to target this, but if a father or a mother uh, relates to a, um, a rising gen who may who is working in the business, we have a position for you. And if you prove yourself over a certain period of time, you're going to get this X piece. I'm citing a particular example. And then at the end of your stint, they go, no, <laughs> right? We changed our mind. Um, for whatever reasons, that breaks the trust. That also puts a almost like shooting an arrow through their heart. Because it's not just a boss saying to an employee, it's a father saying to a son or a daughter, you're not enough. I I still don't believe you're enough to take this position in the company. And I've seen this happen and I've seen the fallout of that. And that is one of the points that's a breaking point. It's a huge breaking point. And it happens a lot. Uh, where, where where they just leave. They say, I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't need you, right? And sometimes they're written out of the will or the trust or whatever it might be because of this dynamic that has shifted. And Jamie, one of the stories is about Anne. And you state that only when she left her father did Anne realize that she had been on a quest of her entire life, kind of on her entire life. Can you tell the listeners about the story of Anne and how this worked out for her and the relationship with her father? Because it was what I'm talking about is a pretty good example, actually, what I just mentioned. It's a great example. Yeah. Um, Anne grew up with a, a, a grandfather who was extremely successful. And father was kind of trying to live up to grandfather's success. Um, When you grow up, you're not aware of what your parents are struggling with. You're only aware of the the role they have. Um, She had attempted very hard to kind of avoid having too much of a relationship with her grandfather. And at one point, um, really got um, recruited literally by a recruiter to work in dad's business. And um, which was um, an unusual business. Um, Dad had, in order to find himself, had gotten into racing cars. She did really well and turned the business around, but her dad and her could not communicate. And... um, she was part of a, an organization that recommended that she um, present to her father um, a proposal that she would report a couple times a year and that she should run the day-to-day. And instead of that working out, Grant, her father said to her, give me a job description so I can replace you. Well, what happened for her? was, and and maybe that was the best thing that ever happened to her. But at the moment, it also really made her realize 
that she had had difficulties in relationships with men for years, and that it was time to sort out not just who she wanted to be professionally, which was more like her grandfather, but about how she was going to be able to get into a relationship and um, feel a sense of wholeness. And when she did that, she began to figure out how to, how to have a little bit of a different relationship with her father. Because um, I think we all want to have end up with some relationship with our parents. Yeah, the the journey she took was uh, quite interesting. Um, and the way it worked out, um, you know, it finally came back to having some relationship again with her father. Now, you mentioned that your research revealed patterns that you discovered four phases common to all of these quests, um, because the book is The Quest for Legitimacy. Can you speak to the listeners about self-awareness, tug-of-war, exploration, and care, and taking center stage phases associated with this journey? Because those are the ones that you point out in the book that are, you talked about them a few minutes ago. Um, I, you don't need to go into depth, but just briefly touch on them and let's talk about them for a minute, because those are the four phases that you see. So the first one is self-awareness. And I would think your listeners, as well as anybody else, whether they came from a wealthy or prominent family or not, has some moment in their life where they find that there's something that distinguishes them and their family that makes them feel different. One extreme we had was somebody who grew up in a theme park that had a zoo behind him. So it didn't take him a long time to realize there was something different about his family than the families around him. At some point, we begin to go out into the world and we're exposed a little bit to the outside world. But now we have what we learned in the world we were born up in, and we have what we're learning in the outside of the world. And we feel pulled in the two directions, the tug of war between the two. At some point, all of us, a little bit more different by culture, Go into a period where we kind of hold what we were born into inside us. Mm -hmm. We spend most of our time gaining experience in the outside world. And um, Anne was actually a good example of that because she had risen in a corporation. She had all kinds of experiences from the outside world that made her valuable back in the family. Mm -hmm. But she did that um, individually. And that, over time, is also the sorting period where we begin to, you know, take off and take ownership of our lives. And I'm not just saying ownership of a business or not ownership of a business, but some sense that um, we're in command, that we're, we're con- we have agency and we're controlling the decisions in our lives. Yeah, very, very good points you make. And in chapter eight of your book, you speak about women on the quest and that these stories are meant to challenge how we view gender roles in storied families. Again, this is around the patriarch, especially families steeped in patriarch. And many of these wealthy families are just that. Um, And how do women get a seat at the table and become heard in families that are dominated with Patriarch. 
as a patriarch? So I was warned before I wrote the chapter not to just say that women are the, uh, you know, chief emotional officer in the family. Right. And because uh, that's sort of traditionally what we th think. So I, what I did in that chapter is there are three different stories with three different women. The one that always stands out for me was a woman who was raised knowing that her grandfather said, if anybody is, if there's ever a woman in the boardroom, she's going to be serving tea. And you can imagine it's her first day on the boardroom and she's not serving tea and she's a board member and she just had a baby two weeks ago and he has to ask the board, can, can I, I'm going to take an hour to go breastfeed my baby. <laughs> <laughs> One of the people from the family office says, can't you hire somebody to do that? <laughs> well, not a great moment. Not quite work that way. <laughs> not what she, but you can see that for women, she ended up being the first one to own shares of the business, to work in the business, to take a role in the board. It, it, it's For women, it's a, a very multi-dynamic um, challenge. Mm -hmm. To be able to figure out, do I have kids? Don't I have kids? What's my role in the world? And I let the stories tell tell the message. Well, I'm going to let my listeners know. You know <laughs> the Quest for Legitimacy uh, is a great book if you're a family uh, dealing with wealth. It might even be a great book for you even if you're not extremely wealthy, <laughs> but just a little bit wealthy, and you see these challenges because we have so much um, affluence in this society yeah. today. Um, and you know, the book is filled with great stories. We've talked about Anne and Rashi and all this, and that help the reader better understand how to navigate the quest for legitimacy. What are a few of the takeaways for the readers that you would like to emphasize and better understand this quest for legitimacy? I mean, we talked about the, you know, kind of stages. Um, but what what would you say if you were to sum up this whole thing and put it in a, a ribbon around it and go, this is why this is something you could take away from this? So I, I, I've got my ribbon out. And the one thing that most universally I'd like to wrap it around <laughs> is yeah. everybody we interviewed thought that they were the only ones going through this. Ah, that's a good point. Right? Very and good so they point. felt lonely and isolated. And if you're in a moment where you feel lonely and isolated, this book will remind you that you're not alone. That This is kind of a... Um, a, uni a universal experience, and I'm in the middle of developing some programs to help Rising Gen kind of really get that and be able to rate, relate to each other and, and go through the quest together. But that's kind of, kind of the starting point. And then if you understand, there's a path. So you're starting group therapy for wealthy people. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm not calling it group therapy, but yes. <laughs> uh, well, I just did that as a pun because normally they're not going to be so willing to share their stories with other people. But um, I, I commend you for you building a community around this because that is exactly what they need. And the truth is they are alone many times, I know, because they don't have this 
openness many times or willingness to share the stories. Um, that's why they feel that they are alone. Um, and so, and the other thing is, I would say you use the word fear in the book. There's a sense of fear that if they break out and talk to somebody about it, uh, that there could be some repercussions because they're very, uh, I'm just going to say secretive. Um, and secretive would kind of be the word. It's, you know, hush, hush. You don't talk about this. This isn't something we do. Um, but for all of these who are listening now, who are dealing with an issue, Dr. Jamie Weiner is your resource. Um, you can find him at inheritingwisdom.com or thequestforlegitimacy.com. That's the book site. We're going to put a link to both of those. And we'll put a link to the book on Amazon as well. Jamie, it's been an honor having you on and a pleasure speaking about something that's uh, very complicated, has to be navigated carefully. And people um, sometimes wonder, you know, why should I get a uh, a navigator psychologist like yourself? <laughs> uh, and the reason you should is because it's going to keep peace in the family and save a lot of people, the pain and suffering that they could go through if they're willing to speak with somebody like yourself and and navigate through that. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing the message and the wisdom from uh, your quest for legitimacy. Thanks, Greg. It's been a delight. You take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.